And now I'd like to welcome to the podium Paul Levesque, President of Pfizer Canada, to say a few words. Thank you, bonjour, and welcome. Pfizer Canada is heureuse de parrainer cette extraordinaire conference. C'est pour nous un très grand honneur de nous associer à un invité de si grand prestige. You will be hearing about Mr. Tony Blair's impressive list of accomplishments shortly. But first, I would like to take this opportunity to tell you why we at Pfizer chose to support this event. We are here for a very important reason. Malaria continues to claim more than one life every 30 seconds. While virtually no one from North America is stricken with this awful disease, in the past decade, more people have died from malaria in, than died in the Second World War. Malaria steals lives, devastates families, cripples economies, and ruins nations. It is also one more factor that worsens the divide between rich and poor nations. To say that concurring malaria is a purely medical imperative, if we can just find the right treatment, fails to do justice to the magnitude of the crisis. It is also a moral imperative and a political one. This is why the work of the Tony Blair Faith Foundation and the Belinda Stronach Foundation is so important and so urgent. Building up resistance to malaria comes in part from breaking down barriers to action by encouraging communities to work together. However, while working together can take us to extraordinary places, it alone will not stop malaria. This is not a new and terrible disease we know little about. It's an old and terrible disease that is overwhelming the standard therapies. Just as we're all afraid of how influenza and SARS can mutate, so can malaria, and it's doing so with devastating efficiency. Despite increased distribution of insecticide-treated sleeping nets, despite more medications made available to millions more people, the fact is malaria is on the rise. Indeed, in some African nations, illness and death from malaria is up by 200 to 300%. This is largely because many of the older anti-malarial medications no longer do the job. Malaria has morphed, rendering some of the standard treatments, quote, virtually useless, unquote. Pfizer is developing a new generation of medication to treat people afflicted with malaria, including one drug targeted to women infected during pregnancy. Pfizer is also working closely with the Clinton Foundation to find new and equitable ways to fund the distribution of malaria medications in developing countries. Pfizer is also very much on the ground in Africa with offices in seven countries. Through Pfizer's Mobilize Against Malaria efforts, we are funding leading non-governmental organizations in Ghana, Kenya, and Senegal to help close critical gaps in malaria treatments and education. These projects are not only about Pfizer medications, they engage and educate treatment providers and patients to improve the utilization and effectiveness of malaria treatments. We're also very proud of our Global Health Fellows Program, which has sent dozens of Pfizer colleagues, including six Canadians, for assignments of up to six months to work on the front line with non-governmental organizations. Many of our fellows are sent to develop and implement anti-malaria programs in Africa. Not only do they have a tremendous impact in African communities, but they bring their experiences back to Pfizer to help us as a company identify solutions to address the unmet needs on the continent. 
All of this said, we must remain humble, very humble, before the enormous task of eliminating malaria. Our work is a small part of a global effort to help people enjoy life without the scourge of this dreadful disease. At Pfizer, we are inspired by the belief that to be truly healthy takes more than medications. It takes faith in the promise of a healthier world. Thank you, thank you merci beaucoup, and enjoy the program. Thank you, Monsieur Levesque, and thank you again to Pfizer for your support. And now I will introduce my co-host. One of the things I most enjoy about my association with the Canadian Club is the opportunity it gives me to work with remarkable people, many of whom are changing the world. People like our guest today, and like the woman I'm about to introduce. When it comes to getting things done in a big way, Belinda Stronach is a force to be reckoned with. She was the Member of Parliament for Newmarket Aurora for, from 2004 till 2008, and the Minister of Human Resources and Skills Development in 2005-2006. Before that, she was the President and Chief Executive Officer of Magna International, Canada's largest auto parts manufacturer, which incidentally set records for sales and profits under her leadership. That might be a little harder to pull off in today's environment. But in many ways, and for many reasons, I think Belinda is most proud of the work she's doing now through the organization she's representing here today. The Belinda Stronach Foundation was officially launched just this year, but its founder has been a devoted philanthropist for quite some time. The foundation's goal is the advancement of human potential through individual empowerment and social change. It's focusing its efforts on three key areas, girls and young women, Aboriginal youth, and global initiatives. It's the third area, global initiatives, that brings us together today. I'll let, you, uh, let her tell you more about that. Please join me in welcoming Belinda Stronach. Well, thank you, Helen, for those very kind words, and uh, it's been a great pleasure to co-host this event with you, and you have an outstanding team, and have made it very easy for us to be able to do this together with you. And I'd also like to thank you, uh, thanks to Pfizer, for uh, being the major sponsor of this event, and we uh, greatly appreciate that, and also the Toronto Star for being our media partner and helping us to get the word out. Uh, my job is now to introduce our guest of honour. And I might start by saying that Tony Blair is good at a lot, but he's really bad at one thing, and that's being retired. <laughs> On the morning of June 27, 2007, Tony stepped down as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, as leader of the Labour Party, and as a member of Parliament. That very afternoon, he was named as Middle East Envoy for the US, Russia, the UN, and the European Union. Tony Blair's retirement had lasted exactly three and a half hours. Once a lawyer, then a politician, Tony became a statesman. In the days that followed, he took on the role of negotiator and traveling orator. And that was just for starters. 
He became a university lecturer at Yale, a corporate advisor on climate change, and a crusader against the scourge of malaria in Africa and beyond. It isn't enough jobs, it's enough jobs to make you ask, has the man never heard of golf? <laughs> as many of you know, Tony Blair has also emerged as a powerful advocate for the influence and importance of faith in the 21st century world. Through the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, he promotes respect and understanding about and among the world's religions and works to further establish faith as a force for good in the modern world. I could walk you through Tony's biography, but why steal Wikipedia's thunder? You know who he is, you know what he stands for, and the values and beliefs that define him. And that's why you're here to see him. I know him as a trusted partner in the fight to reduce and ultimately eliminate deaths from malaria. I know him through the combined efforts of our foundations to give young people of faith the opportunity to make a difference in the world. And I know him as a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the world's worst retiree, the Right Honourable Tony Blair. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Please, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much uh, indeed. That's uh, which just shows you how nice people are to you once you stop being prime minister. Uh, um, I, I, um, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here in sunny Toronto, uh, in this this wonderful country of Canada. And um, in a moment, too, I'm I'm going to to say to you what I think we can do about the, the one million deaths from malaria every year in Africa, deaths that are preventable. Um, but first I'd like to say a few words of thanks to the people that have, have put today together. Um, particularly, of course, I'd like to thank Belinda for her uh, immensely kind introduction to me. Um, Belinda, one of the actually advantages of um, retirement uh, from the front line of politics and well, Belinda, I think she only lasted four and a half years uh, in, in, that, in that particular milieu um, before she realized it was much more sensible to be back out of it. Um, one of the great things is that you get to meet some remarkable people that you didn't get the chance to meet whilst in office. And I can truly say to you that Belinda is one of the most remarkable people I have met. She is a deeply committed and dedicated person as well as a successful entrepreneur. And I think you in Canada can be very proud of her. Um, I'd like to, to thank, um, of course, uh, the Canadian club team and Helen and all, all her colleagues for, for having put together today, um, for FISA, for, for their help, for the Toronto Star, um, the Canadian tenors that we are uh, going to hear from. Um, Tata, Rogers, uh, CPAC, which is your parliamentary channel. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, I know it's different here. I know it's different here, but we have a parliamentary channel in the UK, right? We were once sitting around saying, 
It's some terrible news. How do we keep it quiet? Someone said, announce it on the parliamentary channel. <laughs> uh, uh, but I know it's different here. And I... Sorry, the reviewers there of CPAC saying, what a cheek guy coming over from the UK. Who do they think they are? Uh, I'd like to thank also um, 680 News and most of all, all of you for coming along here today. And what I'm going to, um, to do is to try and in a sh short space of time, because I know I stand between you and lunch, um, tell you how I, I see the world of today uh, through this very lucky perspective of being out of office now so I can tell all the guys who are in office, yeah, it was easy if only I was still around, you know, the thing would be all easily sorted out. Um, this is probably the toughest time to be a political leader that I can remember. And it may help me if I try and approach this as we have a new administration in the United States, if you like, through, through, through the eyes of uh, the new president there and the, and the challenges as, as I see them that confront him. And he has, of course, come to office with a, an enormous amount of, of hope and expectation uh, gathered around him. Um, I remember when I was in uh, New York just shortly after his, his election, uh, back last November, and I remember bumping into a woman who said to me, uh, isn't it wonderful, everything is possible? And I said, uh, like what? Uh, and she said, well, everything. Uh, and it's kind of like that. There is a huge sense of, of, of expectation in the air. It reminds me, in a, in a way, of when I came into power in 1997, um, and we'd been out of power for 18 years, and, and there's a, just a tremendous momentum for change and hope and almost uh, euphoria that's in the air. Um, and I remember, actually, I remember going into Downing Street the very first day after I'd been elected, and I mean, you all know the pictures of number 10 Downing Street, would you go in the door? And the tradition is when the new prime minister comes in, all the staff line up on the main corridor that leads down at the end of the corridor to the cabinet room. And all the staff in Downing Street were gathered there and they, they, they're supposed to clap in the, the, the new prime minister. Well, of course, the other lot have been in for 18 years. So they kind of got used to them. So I was walking down the line, shaking hands and some of them were crying. So I kind of get to the end of the line, I'm feeling really guilty about the whole thing now. Uh, but I remember going into the cabinet room and, and sitting down, there was the cabinet secretary who was the, uh, the, the leading civil servant. And I sat down with him and he just looked at me and said, well done, now what? Uh, and I think we're now in the situation, if you like, with the, the new administration settling in when as it were, the, the euphoria is not enough, the decisions have got to be taken, the direction set, and um, the policies made. And I think the, the challenges are, are, the reason I say it's so tough, the challenges are, first of all, they're now. I mean, it's great when you come into office to get a few months, sometimes even a couple of years, to kind of work your way in, get your feet under the table, suss it all out you know, get your bearings. These challenges, the economy, security, the environment are here and now. They're 2009. They're global challenges. The thing that is, I think, most extraordinary about the world economic crisis is just 
how it has spread like contagion around the world, that suddenly what happened in the American subprime mortgage market is of significance to people in the remotest parts of the UK, uh, Canada, Europe, elsewhere in the world. Um, I remember last September, actually, at the, the very moment when um, Lehman Brothers failed, and watching the UK news, and there it was, leading the news, Lehman Brothers failed. You were aware of the fact that for the first time in their lives, people in, in Britain would be hearing the name of the company and realizing it had a significance for their, their lives. In fact, when I was on my way out uh, that, that morning, actually, to go to the airport, and there was a guy who saw me in the street, and he said, hey, you should know. Who are these brothers, anyway? <laughs> and you know, No one knew, right? But suddenly, it matters. And all of these crises, security too, they're, they're global in their nature. So they're now, they're global. And I think there's one other characteristic of them. They actually, in a, in a profound sense, pose a challenge to us about our system and even our way of life. So if you take the economy, the issue is, given the size and scale of the economic tsunami, if you like, that has hit us, what is it that we need to change about our economic system? Now, personally, I think it is very important that just as we take the measures that are necessary to stimulate our economy, to fix the financial sector, we don't actually lose the essential creativity and enterprise that is the hallmark of countries like ours and that has, in fact, given our countries unparalleled prosperity over many, many decades. I think it's important that we don't turn, for example, towards protectionism, but keep open trading markets. I think it's important that we recognize that although the state has to come in and support us and our economy through this situation, that we still want at the end of it to be in a position where we are reigniting the strength of that free enterprise system, not displacing it. One very useful thing we can do in the context of the economic crisis is to make sure if we are stimulating our economy, we're building our infrastructure and particularly the energy infrastructure that we need for the future. Now here, of course, in Canada, it's a different situation from many parts of the world since you are so, so rich in resources. But for us, certainly, in Europe, it is going to be important that we use this as an opportunity to stimulate the development of clean energy, of new technologies, of be able, being able to be in a position where as our economy recovers, we don't forget what it was like um, when the price of oil was very high and when our economies were very worried about the impact of energy prices and energy security on our ability to compete effectively. So I think over the next period of time, there will be a concentration, of course, by the new American administration, by everybody, on trying to sort out this global economic crisis. But I think it's important, having got through it, that we retain the essential dynamism that has made our economy strong and that we prepare in the measures that we take for the economy of the future and how in particular we make sure that as we grow, we do so sustainably and in a way that protects our environment and shows our responsibility to future generations. But most of all, what I want to talk to you about today is also the issues to do with culture, that impact on security, 
that um, a lot to do with the work I do now out in the Middle East and how that too affects our way of life and the place of faith and my own foundation in that. I spend a lot of time now out in the, uh, in the Holy Land, um, in Israel and Palestine, and it's a wonderful place to visit. One of the advantages of it, actually, if you are someone of religious faith, is it allows you to go and visit these historic sites. A um, short time ago, I was, it was, I was in Jericho, and they, they took me up to see uh, the Mount of Temptation. Uh, I think they take all the politicians there. And we were, actually I, was, I made a particularly stupid remark as we were going into Jericho and I said to my, uh, I said to, to my guide, Jericho, isn't it wonderful to be in Jericho? Where are the walls? And he, he looked at me for a minute and he said, actually if you remember they fell down. Uh, but out there you see in its clearest form a struggle that, of course, is about politics and is about territory. But it is also profoundly about culture, and in particular about whether people of different faiths and different cultures can live together and work together in peaceful coexistence. And that struggle, unfortunately, is part of a far wider struggle, and a struggle in which the role of faith and its implications for our stability and our security are profound. I wish I could say right now out there that the situation was not as fragile as I believe it to be. But I think when we hear of Taliban forces just 100 kilometers from Islamabad, we contemplate the sacrifices that you're making and that we're making in my country and other countries around the world are making in Afghanistan. We look at the situation, though, measurably improved from a couple of years ago in Iraq. We look at the Lebanon and Palestine. These things are well known. But how many people know, for example, of the 150,000 people that have died in the Mindanao dispute in the Philippines? Of the tens of thousands that have died in Algeria? Of the instability and fragility of countries like the Yemen? Or if you go into the northern part of Africa, where there used to be Christian and Muslim populations that lived at peace with one another, and actually in a fair degree of harmony with one another, whose harmony has now been disrupted and destabilized. The truth is, we live in a world, whether like it or not, globalization is shrinking it and pushing it together. And the issue is, does religious faith and do issues of culture then pull the world back apart? Sometimes people say to me, why, why, you know, why on earth after leaving uh, number 10 Downing Street should you choose something like an interfaith, a religious interfaith foundation to be the new sphere of your life? And the interesting thing is when I talk about this to people outside the world of politics. They scratch their heads and are rather curious about it. When you talk to people who are inside the world of politics today in positions of leadership, they understand it exactly. And they understand it because we know as political leaders 
having been engaged in the events of the last 10 or 15 years, that unless we can create a situation in which people of different cultures and faiths can live together peacefully, can learn to respect, not just tolerate each other, but respect each other, then it's going to be very hard to resolve those questions of conflict and security that confront us. So part of the answer, of course, will lie in Israel and Palestine, in how you describe a Palestinian state and how you negotiate over the issues to do with refugees, how you carve out the right solution on Jerusalem. Yes, of course, all of these political questions have got to be dealt with. But it will also be in part about whether we can create the atmosphere and the context within which people fiercely proud of their Jewish faith or fiercely proud of their Muslim faith can live side by side in what is a small strip of land that you could fit within a small part, probably of one state, of Canada. So that's the issue. And part of the answer lies, therefore, in how we handle the questions of faith. Now, my foundation um, is about the Abrahamic faith, but it's actually broader than that. So we deal um, with the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, but we also deal with Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism. And the purpose of the foundation is to have better education so that people understand more because where there's understanding, uh, there is more likely to be harmony and peace and where there is ignorance, there is more likely to be fear and conflict. Part of it, however, is about action. It's about saying there'll be all sorts of doctrinal disputes and theological questions that people of faith can engage in. But actually what would be most important is if the people of faith can put those to one side for a moment, accept that I will remain a Christian, a Muslim will remain a Muslim, but ask what we can do together as people of faith to make the world better. In that same um, visit that I made to Jericho, um, the same guide, who's my Palestinian guide, just as we were walking up the, the, the steps to, to the Mount of Temptation, he just stopped for a moment because we'd been talking about the Palestinian situation, how terrible it was and how dreadful. He just stopped for a moment and he said, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, why did they all have to come here? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you think for a moment about how people now view faith today, and very often they view it and associate it with conflict. They associate it with division and sectarianism and people dividing off from one another. The purpose of my foundation, therefore, is to try to promote greater education and understanding and dialogue, of course, between the faiths, but also to show in action that faith can play a positive part in resolving the world's challenges. And there cannot be any better and more urgent need to demonstrate that coming together for the purposes of action than in the campaign we are engaged in with Belinda's foundation and with the anti-malaria campaign. You've heard one or two things about 
that campaign already today. Here is the thing that is most shocking and that should most awaken our conscience about it. Those one million deaths every year, the majority young children, are preventable. It is not that we do not know what to do, and it is not that we have not shown that where we do it, it has an effect. Essentially, what the families need out in Africa are the bed nets, because malaria strikes predominantly at night whilst the children are sleeping. Children should sleep under a bed net. A bed net is $10. And they need access to the medicines and trained healthcare workers. Now, those bed nets, for $10 each bed net, literally save lives. How do we know? We know because where we've done it, it saved lives. In Rwanda, where there has been a campaign to provide the bed nets, the numbers of death from malaria have fallen by over 50%. In Zanzibar, where they made a major push on malaria, they've reduced the deaths of virtually to nothing. But as our colleague from Pfizer was telling us earlier, the fact is, without that, the numbers of deaths are on the rise. So we have a challenge that is clear, people dying, even during the course of our gathering here today, there will be those that have died from malaria. We have a challenge. We have a solution. And the question is, do we have the will to do it? Now, what my foundation is trying to achieve is the mobilization of the faith community to try to make a difference in this fight. And the reason the faith community is important is, of course, because there are many people who are people of faith that in their faith communities can help raise awareness of this issue and can help raise money for it. But there is another reason. Out there in those remote parts of Africa, a health clinic or a hospital is a rarity. People have to travel miles, sometimes 100 miles or more, to get there. For very obvious reasons, therefore, often they don't, and therefore they die. But every one of those communities, no matter how remote, has a place of worship in it. They will have a church or a mosque or a place of worship. And they could be the means of helping distribute the bed nets and the medicines. The infrastructure, in other words, of faith could help provide the answer to this problem. So, my foundation is partnering the anti-malaria campaign in trying to mobilize people of faith to do something about it. And we've created a program, which is just a, a program we are starting now. We've just appointed the first fellows on that program, who are three uh, young women who are here today, are representatives of that program. There's Maya Smith, there's Hilary Kichi, there's Ariba Jawad. And those three young people, one Jewish, one Christian, one Muslim, are going to get training, go out to Africa, come back into their faith community here in Canada, and try and raise awareness and support for the anti-malaria campaign.
And yesterday, I met um, the faith leaders from Canada, including people from the Aboriginal community. And we agreed that we would do all we could to mobilize support amongst the faith community here in Canada to try and deal with this issue of malaria. Now, I think this is obviously, I do, I think it's an important challenge in humanitarian terms as a moral cause and so on. But I think there is one other reason why this is so important for us. I talked earlier about the global economy and the challenge that there is and the security threat that we face. And I said right at the very beginning that I thought these threats were characterized by the fact that they were urgent, they were global, and they also called upon us in some very special way to protect our own way of life. And so that's why I say in respect of the economy, it's important we, we, we keep confidence in the basic enterprise system that we have in respect of security, why it's important that we stand up and see through the challenges that we have. But here is the thing which I think is so important. Part of our way of life, part what makes our societies and countries distinctive, is a belief in social solidarity and compassion for other people. You know, when I think of Canada and I, I think of the people that are here today and how many of you will have um, migrated from other parts of the world, including mine, and you think of how strong a country and society this is. I know for all the problems that you have, intrinsically, innately, deep down, this is a strong country and strong society. And one of the reasons that you have had that strength over the years, the strength that has seen this country work alongside countries like mine in defending freedom, in defending the future, in protecting the world, from the challenges that beset it. One of the reasons is that you have something very, very special that most countries strive for, but very few achieve. All of you, whatever your background, consider yourselves equal members of the human race. So even though coming together here into Canada has been people from different nations and different faiths and different cultures. There is a point at which you unite, and that point is about the values you believe in. And those values are about a sense of compassion towards other people, a belief in equality, a belief in the essential dignity of each and every human being. Now, if we face these challenges in the world that are so profound and that do touch on the essence of our way of life, how can we allow, no matter it is thousands of miles away, people in the poorest part of the world to die when we could, without enormous effort, save their lives? And if we decide, on the contrary, that what we are going to do is to act and to make those life-saving actions count, faced as we are, with those appalling statistics which represent human lives lost, if we are to do that, 
Think of what a great signal that sends out to the world about the type of people we are, about our way of life and what we believe in. So my plea to you today is, is, is this, that it's important that we take this particular issue seriously, of course. And what we are trying to do is to show in the way that we're going to work as people of faith, and Belinda's organization will, will work as those connected with the anti-malaria campaign, we're going to try and show what we can do together in order to combat this scourge, this deadly disease that kills so many people. But we also have to bear in mind one other thing, that as this century develops, we have to decide what are the values that govern it. And sometimes people feel that globalization is such an impersonal, strong force that it sweeps everything before it, like this economic crisis, and there's nothing we can do to prevent it. But actually, there is no force that doesn't have to be shaped by the values that give it direction and allow it to be positive rather than negative. So the challenge we have is, of course, in respect of this campaign and this disease and how we can combat it. But the challenge at heart is deeper than that. It's about showing the world that the type of society you've created here and we've created back in my country is a society that is worth standing up for, whose values are worth articulating, and whose values can be expressed in the actions that we take on behalf of others. So I would like to thank you all very much indeed for coming today and being part of this, this event. It is a, it's a strange thing when you, um, you give up uh, power in, in the conventional political sense and you work out what to do with your, your, your life. As I always say to people, I think I said to some people last time I was in Canada, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a strange thing you start again after you, you, you leave office. Like the first thing they gave, they, I got my first mobile phone straight after I, right? It was the day after I left, yeah? And, and I was so thrilled, right? Because I'm, I'm really happy. So I, I hadn't been out of office 24 hours, so I decided, because I never used a mobile phone before. I know you guys text here, do you do a lot of texting here? Yeah, you do a lot of texting, of course you do a lot of texting. Uh, so I text a friend of mine and say, hi, how are you, right? I don't realize that my name doesn't show up on the text. So I get a message back which says, sorry, but who are you? And I'm kind of sitting there thinking, it's been 24 hours. <laughs> so you get used to putting all the power to one side, but the passion doesn't go, and my passion today is to try and make a difference, and I want to do that through my faith foundation, but I want to do that also to fight malaria, but I want to do that also because I think our way of life is actually, for all its faults and all its challenges, worth standing up for, worth believing in, and worth trying to persuade others of the virtue of, um, and there's only one way to do that, and that is not showing it in words, but showing it in deeds 
and that's why I ask you to help me do so. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'd like to call on John Capabianco, President-elect of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to offer official thanks on behalf of the Belinda Stronach Foundation and the Canadian Club. Mr. Blair, thank you for coming to speak with us today. When I first heard about the launch of the Tony Blair Faith Foundation last year, frankly, I was amazed. After 24 years in politics and government, 10 of those as the UK's Prime Minister, you still have the ambition, the energy, and the faith to devote yourself to tackling some of the world's most pressing and pervasive problems. As Belinda mentioned, you don't even take a vacation. Like Canadians everywhere, I'm sure you're proud that we and your young people were among the first chosen to participate with you in the Faith's, Faith's Acts Fellowship. I don't think that choice was an accident. By joining the forces with Belinda Stronic Foundation, you've created a powerful conduit, a portal to access the mo and mobilize one of the most generous and giving nations on earth. In 2004, the last year for which statistics are available, 85% of Canadians over the age of 15 had made a financial contribution to a charitable or nonprofit organization the previous year. Those donations totaled $8.9 billion. Most of that money, 45% of it, went to religious or faith-based organizations. Canadians are also consummate volunteers. In that same period, 45% of us, 15 years, and years of age and older, had been involved in some kind of volunteer work during the previous year. That's an estimated 2 billion hours of donated time, the equivalent of 1 million full-time jobs in this country. Mr. Blair, all of us here today wish you and the Belinda Stronach Foundation every success with the wonderful work of the Faith Acts Foundation and your mission to fight malaria and save millions of our lives around the world. I know that you'll get the support, enthusiasm, and sweet equity that Canada and our young people can muster to help you. On behalf of all of us here, we thank you very much. Thank you, John, and thank you once again, Mr. Blair. Before lunch, we are honored to have four special guests perform O Canada for us today. Please welcome Fraser, Remigio, Victor, and Clifton, the Canadian tenors.
Thank you, Canadian tenors, for that wonderful performance. We'll be hearing from the tenors again a little later. Could I now ask you to stand and uh, join me in a toast to Canada? To Canada. Thank you. And to Canada. You can all toast now, and you can sit, and you can enjoy your lunch now. And to the UK. <laughs> and to the UK. <laughs> Thank you, and uh, we'll be hearing from our tenors a little bit later, but now um, enjoy your lunch, please.